seated, I invite you to turn this morning in your own copy of God's Word or to one of the ones in the chairs in front of you to the book of Acts as we continue our series in Acts. The book of Acts chapter 8, we'll be reading verses 1 through 25 this morning. And as you turn to Acts chapter 8, uh, we're going to return to last Sunday's idea of Jesus bringing in the kingdom by bringing disruption and change. And specifically, I want to look at how important mature discipleship is when Jesus starts disrupting the church by allowing it to undergo intense pressure and uncertainty. Uh, last week, I told you that the word that uh, we usually translate using that old English word, tribulation, means pressure. This week, I want you to know that the word translated as persecution means drive away. So when the Bible says, as it does in our passage this morning, that the church experienced a time of persecution in Jerusalem, it means that people were trying to drive Jesus and his people away from them in order to stop Jesus from drawing near and disrupting the lives that they wanted to live. And there's obviously a lot of ways to drive somebody away. There's a lot of ways to persecute. Violence is one obvious way. That's probably what we think of when we think of persecution. Uh, imprisonment is another way. Both of those are going to show up in the beginning of our text this morning. But you'll see that what Saul is doing to the church. Uh, but there's other ways, too. Uh, isolating people by driving them from your group. Uh, alienating them by having kind of public meetings in front of them where they're very clearly not involved. Maybe there's a bunch of people off in a circle, their arms are closed, you're back here, and they're whispering over their shoulder, and then they continue on. That's another way of driving someone away. Uh, crushing someone's reputation to drive their voice out of people's lives. You can't trust them, don't listen to them. Harassing them with lies and secret threats. There's a lot of different ways to try and drive Jesus and his people away. And that persecution carries with it uh, a number of forms of pressure. Uh, the pressure of fear. The pressure of loneliness that comes from wanting to belong. The pressure to do whatever it takes to belong, or at least to make the situation better. And uh, that pressure that comes from people trying to drive us away because we represent Jesus, that has a profound impact on our discipleship, on the way that we follow Jesus. It provides actually an incredible opportunity for self-discovery where our immaturity and our weaknesses and our frailties can be exposed. And with that, it also provides them an incredible opportunity for spiritual growth as you seek the face of Christ and seek faithfulness in the midst of that intense pressure. Though, of course, it also provides an opportunity to return to spiritually unhealthy habits that maybe we've been trying to put off, or even worse, to develop new ones. Uh, to give you an idea of what I mean, uh, as I was starting work this week on the sermon on Monday, I was reviewing my notes for this passage, which are basically the things you're hearing now and you're going to hear, and uh, it become time to write the sermon. And so I do what uh, I always do when it's time to write the sermon. I check my email. Because um, that's what you do when you have something to write, right? You don't write it. You check your email or you look out the window or you get a snack or whatever. Uh, and I, so I check my email and in my inbox, there's an, in, there's an email from my kids' elementary school that says, attention. So I open it. And it says there's a police presence at the school. All student and faculty are safe, but there's a 
potentially volatile device in the lot. And I stared at it, and then I read it again, and then I'm embarrassed to tell you, but I think I need to tell you this because I believe pastoral openness is essential to collective spiritual growth. My first thought was, if anyone hurts my kids, I will end them. Uh, my first thought at the pressure of fear and danger and loss and helplessness was not prayer. It was violence and revenge. And I know you're probably thinking the same thing that I would think and say to you if you were telling me this story. Well, Pastor Matt, that response seems totally understandable. And yes, it is. But it's not the response I want to have as my first response. I want to have the faith, faith of a psalmist. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, that is, some trust in weapons of war, which is what those are, and in their own fighting skill. But I trust in the name of the Lord. It's Jesus who holds life and death in his hands. It's Jesus who wills whether or not one hair falls from my kid's head or any kid's head or not. It's Jesus who orders our days and our steps. It's Jesus who is the stronghold of his people. And it's Jesus who answers prayer. And it's also Jesus who says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. You see, I want to be a mature enough as a Christian, close enough to Jesus as a disciple, that my first response to that kind of email or any kind of message like that is to pray to the Lord, to seek his face, to cry out to the only one who can truly help. I want my first response to be trust, that is faith, not my 10 minutes later response, which the Holy Spirit sort of shoved me into prayer, like, pray. I mean, it wasn't like that, but it kind of felt like that. Pray, this is the time for prayer. And just to close the story, praise God, it was an antique grenade some kid had brought to show off to his friends. Everything was okay. Uh, but this is what I mean about pressure being a great opportunity to learn about yourself and to have an opportunity to grow closer to Jesus and to mature in the faith. And all of these responses are now at the top of my daily prayer list because I want to take what's true about me to Jesus and have him take it and change it so that I look more like him. Uh, and I want us all to develop this kind of response to pressure, and that's what our passage is going to help us do. But we're going to see the church enter a time of intense pressure. We're going to see that most of the church responds very well to that pressure. We're going to talk about why that was. But we're also going to see one new disciple, Simon, respond very poorly. Uh, so poorly that the apostles Peter and John will talk to him as though his very soul is in danger. And then through his negative example, we're going to think about how we can respond well to disruption and pressure and persecution. So our points are on the wall. Uh, let's read Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25, and then we'll talk about this some more. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his, that is uh, Stephen's, persecution, execution. And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. 
And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with this magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, uh, when the apostles of Jer at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Thus far the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, which uh, we know is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, is the, the means by which your Holy Spirit has chosen primarily to form us into the image of Christ. But Lord, we know that if your Holy Spirit does not bless the word to us, uh, it will have no benefit for us. And so Lord, we therefore pray that your Spirit will give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your word. Father, may the words in my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage begins with uh, Jesus bringing in a great disruption by allowing the church to experience persecution at the hands of Saul. And for those who don't know, Saul will later on become the Apostle Paul, and we'll talk about that more in chapter 9 when Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus. But just to point out what our text says in verse 1, Saul, Paul, approved of the unjust execution of Stephen, which tells us he was someone at this point who not only believed that this death was, death was justified, but also that God was very happy with it. And that's a scary person. Someone who has decided that God approves of me attacking this group of people is very scary. Uh, as C.S. Lewis pointed out in one of his books, um, the person who hurts because he likes it, he just likes hurting people, he will eventually grow tired of it. You'll get some reprieve from that kind of a person. But the person who hurts because he believes it is pleasing to God, 
and it's good for you, he will never tire of it because his malformed, poorly trained conscience will drive him to hurt and kill for God's pleasure and your good. And that's what Saul was doing. Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church, that was a word, ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And just to let you know, the point of prison there was to get them to recant their faith in Jesus or be stoned to death like Stephen. Uh, so there's obviously a lot of pressure here, isn't there? Whereas before in Acts, the pressure was mainly being applied to the apostles by the religious leaders, the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. It's now being applied to the people in the pew. And whereas before the church was experiencing an, an incredible expansion, it was exploding in numbers, now those numbers are facing imprisonment and possible death. And so the church does what Jesus tells us to do in times of persecution, which is they flee. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. Which, by the way, tells us that Jesus' goal for us is to die in the faith, not so much to die for the faith. Uh, martyrdom, dying for the faith, is not a goal that Jesus wants us to live for, and it's not a calling that he's placed upon most Christians at, at most times. No, instead, Jesus wants us to live in the faith. He's concerned that he has a living people who are living for him in the communities he's placed them, and so he wants us to move during times of persecution because he's using the forces that are trying to drive the gospel away as a means of driving the gospel to others because jesus builds his kingdom through disruption and change right and that's what we see happen to philip and many other disciples who are now uh, scattered from jerusalem to the nearby region of samaria now just as a reminder uh, the samaritans and the israelites uh, were not historically friends there's a lot of animosity there there's a lot of suspicion there and to give you an idea about it think about what it would mean for a group from Texas to be driven from their homes and take shelter in Tijuana, Mexico. Uh, the physical difference between those two places is not very great. It's about the distance between Jerusalem and Samaria, but like the difference between Jerusalem and Samaria, the cultural differences, the language differences, those are big. The historical wounds are big. The distrust is big. That's what's happening here. But what's incredible is that though that's true, we see Philip immediately start giving the gospel to the Samaritans, offering them the opportunity to join Jesus' family as Philip's brothers and sisters in Christ. He treats them, you see, with one of the spiritual disciplines we've been looking at kind of throughout our, our series, sacrificial hospitality. I will lay down my fear, my sorrow, and my suspicion in our history together at the feet of Jesus so that I can invite you through Jesus into his kingdom and welcome you into my life in his name as family. And just as an aside, uh, Jesus could have allowed this persecution to begin at any time, right? 
But I think he waited until now because he wanted Christians like Philip to have matured enough that when he did eventually allow them to be driven from Jerusalem to Samaria, they would have the spiritual maturity developed through their rule of life to do this well. And the rule of life, right, the, the way in which you organize your life around Jesus, so weekly worship, weekly rest in Christ through a, a daily Sabbath, ideally Sunday, where you experience life, delight, and communion with God and his people. A corporate prayer where the church gathers together and prays together. And of course, sacrificial hospitality where the church learns to welcome each other, the people God has placed around you, into your life through Christ as he brings them to you, not as we want them to be, right? Sacrificial hospitality. See, they, they, through this word of life, they would now have the spiritual maturity necessary to sacrificially create the opportunity to have their historic enemies join them as equal members of Jesus' family. It's a very different response than vengeance and bitterness, isn't it? It's a response that was produced by the devotion to Christ that they had been practicing for months and maybe even years. It's hard to know exactly how much time has passed, but it's at least months. And so I bring this up because, my friends, I want you to see that our devotional practices, weekly worship, resting in Jesus each week, praying together in our growth groups and just on the phone, sacrificially welcoming each other into our lives, that has an impact. It, it matters, and you can see why it matters here. It, it has profoundly changed the community that Jesus suddenly put his church in. Now, as we saw, and here on our second point, God blesses this, this work incredibly. And as we see in verse 12, a bunch of Samaritans come to faith, including Simon, who was a magician. Uh, now let's look at uh, Simon for a second, uh, because Luke is holding him up as a contrast to Philip. And with any contrast, kids, there's differences and there's similarities. And Luke gives us two similarities between Philip and uh, Simon I want us to look at. The first is uh, both of them did things that amazed the people around them, right? Philip, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was amazing the people by driving out unclean spirits and healing the paralyzed and the lame, while Simon amazed the people through the practice of magic. And we don't know exactly what that magic looked like, but it clearly wasn't anything that Philip was doing, driving out demons, healing the lame, healing the sick. Uh, but anyway, that's the first similarity. They were both amazing to people. Here's the second similarity. People paid attention to them. And Luke wants us to see that that attention is really important to the story. So in verse 6, Luke says, The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And then down in verse 10, Luke tells us that those same people had also all paid attention from, to Simon from the least to the greatest. And you can see in the verses surrounding there, attention, attention, attention is paid over and over, is mentioned over and over again. So power and attention, that's where Philip and Simon overlap. Here's the difference. Philip was doing these things out of love. He did it to bring people joy, verse 8, right? And there was much joy in the city. Philip was serving them in the name of Jesus for free without asking for anything in return so that they could meet Jesus and be united to Jesus and then be united together as a 
as a family. He wasn't doing it for money, power, or fame, but to have his family in Christ expanded to have the name of Jesus grown. It's for them and their good. And his pleasure getting to welcome people into his life, I suppose you could say, but not money, power, or fame. Simon very clearly did his magic for money, power, and fame. Uh, Simon very clearly had devoted his life to the pursuit of fame, power, and money. And that's why he was a magician. It got him attention. Attention got him power, and it got him influence. If, he, if YouTube was around then, he would have been an influencer on YouTube, right? And then that got him money. But then Simon hears the gospel of Jesus, and he believes. And this is so important. Look at verse 13. Even Simon himself believed and was baptized and continued with Philip. So Simon and his way of life, they've now been disrupted by Jesus. And he's now a Christian who is not practicing magic any longer, but as our text says, is following Philip. He's positioning himself as a disciple of, of Philip. He's saying, I will follow Philip because Philip was following Jesus. Beloved, this is so important to see and to hear to understand the story correctly. Simon is a Christian who is pursuing Jesus. And here's why it's so important for us to see this. Because Simon is also a Christian who has not yet faced with any depth or profundity the way, of, the way that living for power, money, and fame has shaped his heart and mind. And you can see his obliviousness to that when Luke says in verse 13 that he's amazed by the miracles Philip performed. Uh, he isn't amazed by Philip's love. He isn't amazed by Philip's hospitality. Uh, he isn't amazed at the restored families and lives and people who can now like earn their own money and take care of their sick mom because their legs are healed. He's amazed by Philip's power. So he's, he's a follower of Jesus who's focusing on the wrong thing. And I say all that because I want us to notice the difference that Luke is making between someone who has spent months and months and maybe years and years devoting themselves to weekly corporate worship and weekly Sabbath and corporate prayer and sacrificial hospitality to those who have devoted themselves, as we talked about last Sunday, to facing the truth about themselves and the confidence that Jesus can meet that with his grace and mercy. I remember how last week I mentioned the, the genogram and about being honest about how our families have affected us for good and bad and how we are affecting people around us for good and bad and how to respond with gentleness and mercy and repentance and the knowledge that Jesus can hold all of that in compassion and, and work his transforming power in us. In other words, there's a huge difference between someone who has stepped into the disruptive work of Jesus by faith and with devotion for a long period of time and said, Jesus, I am open to what you're doing. Change me. And someone who has not yet done that. There is a huge difference between a Christian who has faced what's under the surface of their words and behavior and who is working to submit that to Jesus' transforming work and those who have not. Uh, so Simon is a Christian. God has said so in Acts. Even Simon himself believed and was baptized. But he's not yet faced the depths of his character 
or submitted it to Jesus for his transformation. And that brings us to our third and, and final point. So eventually the, the apostles in Jerusalem, they learn that the gospel has arrived in power in Samaria. And so they send Peter and John to go check it out. And then we read in verse 15 that when Peter and John arrive, I'm going to read verse 15 here, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, I need to have a quick word on this. So in Acts, whenever the gospel goes out to a brand new area, there is often what one of my seminary professors, Dennis Johnson, who wrote a very nice, short, accessible commentary on Acts, which is very good. He calls them mini-Pentecosts. Uh, so at this point in history, the apostles were going out to confirm the arrival of the gospel in new lands and new peoples, especially in cases like this, if those people had a history of hatred for each other, uh, like the Jews and the Samaritans did. And so that's why there appears to be a, a separation here between baptism and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. There's a, this is a unique time in our history as God's people where God is showing in a very unique way that he is welcoming the nations into the church and making enemies into friends through his son, Jesus. But having said that, I also want us to see that that is just not normally how it works, not even today, but even in Acts. In Acts chapter 2, the 3,000 souls who were baptized, they received the Spirit at their baptism. And in the next verses, the Ethiopian eunuch will receive the Holy Spirit at his baptism without the apostles being present. The same is true of all the Christians who were in Rome, who until Paul arrives later, decades later, have never met an apostle. <laughs> so it's a rare, unique thing that Jesus does occasionally in the early church in Acts when the gospel comes to a people where there's been some hostility between the two. In other words, every baptized Christian here has the Holy Spirit. You don't need to worry about that. Okay? That's important. Y'all have the Holy Spirit. You belong to Jesus. More interesting, though, and this is going to connect us back to our point, is the laying on of hands to give the Holy Spirit. There's two givings of the Spirit. You see that? One is the laying on of hands. So quickly, in Acts, like we saw a couple Sundays ago, the laying on of hands is ordaining someone to leadership and setting them apart for leadership in the church of Jesus. And so what the apostles are doing is they are appointing now local leaders in this newly formed church the kind of people we saw uh, back in, what is that, chapter 6? Yes, where the, with the, the servants of the church who will help uh, organize the, the giving out of the diaconal offering and lead people in uh, spiritual discipline. And apparently, some of these local leaders are blessed with the abilities to heal like Philip was. And Simon, he sees this and his heart formed as it's been from years and years and decades of living for money power and fame he suddenly sees an opportunity to use the church and the, and the gospel and the holy spirit as a way to pursue money power and fame and so he approaches the apostles verse 18 and he offers to buy this power from them. He's basically offering to purchase a position of leadership in the church. That's really what he's asking them to do. 
Uh, now I realize where we're at on time, but can I just say this? I just have to say this. It amazes me how easily the apostles said no to this. Because Simon is famous, and he's influential, and he's wealthy. And they are all experiencing the threat of imprisonment and death. And to have someone who is well-known and respected, who has the ear of powerful people, people that can protect you, maybe not protect you in Jerusalem, but in Samaria, and to have money, right? Money solves a lot of problems, the preacher says in Ecclesiastes. Wine is for, what is it? Bread is for fellowship, wine gladdens the heart, and money answers everything. That's my life verse, Ecclesiastes. <laughs> With money, you can buy your way out of so much legal trouble. Especially maybe if you wanted to pay Herod to get involved, the king, you know, the puppet king of that area, and stop Saul from imprisoning you, maybe have it turn the tables on him, maybe have him imprisoned. I mean, I read this and I see to me what would have been an incredible moment of intense pressure as a leader who is trying to keep my people alive and the church growing to say, okay, that sounds okay. Uh, but they tell him no. And they appear to tell him no pretty easily. Uh, my friends, that kind of faith, that kind of spiritual maturity, that is not easily won. Uh, to prevent a powerful, wealthy, influential person from entering leadership when they are not yet ready to lead in the church of Jesus is very hard. And then to potentially even make an enemy of such a person, even if you're already surrounded by enemies, and to choose the hard no over the easy yes, like that is an incredibly difficult thing to do. But they did it. Now, how they did it wasn't a miracle, right? It wasn't because they were super Christians who were just so much holier than, than us. It was because they had built their lives around Jesus. And they had just spent all this time with Jesus in his three years of ministry and all these months and years after his death and resurrection and ascension, devoting themselves to his worship and his word and to his Sabbath. They devoted themselves to praying with each other and to sacrificially welcoming each other to stepping into Jesus' disruptive works and offering themselves to Christ for his transforming of grace. And in all of these, right, they'd stepped into this disruption with honesty and trust, and they'd been transformed. And so they were able to say no. And then they did something also amazing. It's, it's a hard invitation, but it's a real invitation. They invited Simon, sternly, but nonetheless really, into the same transformative journey. So after responding with a horrified and shocked, no, <laughs> right? They call him to repent in verses 22 to 23. He says, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And I know we're so low on time, but just quickly, when they say that Simon is in the gall of bitterness, Gall is just the name of an emotional state, right? We have different names for emotional states, right? Depression, bad mood, like the word gall basically describe negative emotions, uh, the, the experience of negative emotions. And what they tell Simon is, you are carrying the emotion of bitterness around with you. And they use a grammatical construction that tells us the apostles believe that that bitterness 
has been with him for a long time. It's predated Jesus. It predates the time when he came to faith in Christ. And he's basically saying, you're bitter when people have influence that you don't. When people have power that you don't. When people have attention that you don't. When, when you're not the object of people's affections, you are angry and upset and you begrudge people from having what you want and you will do whatever you can to get that for yourself. That's bitterness. And I know what that means because Peter clarifies it with a Bible verse. When he tells Simon he's in the bond of iniquity, he's quoting from Isaiah 58, verses 6 to 9. And there, I was going to do a long thing on this, but I did not have time, so I'm going to summarize it. And there God is telling Israel they need to face their selfishness and repent of it by seeking the good of others. Because as they seek others' people's good, as they submit and serve those who are around them, like Philip was doing and like they are now calling uh, Simon to do, they will encounter Jesus through that service and be transformed. And I don't have time to read it this morning anymore, but you should go home and read Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 8. It's very humbling, and it's very encouraging, and it's what Peter uses to help Simon see that not only is he not ready for leadership, but his whole life of discipleship is actually in peril because though he believes in Jesus, like the Israelites of Isaiah's day did, he's shifted to looking at Jesus as a power to be mastered and not a master to be served. Repent of this way of thinking. Find Jesus and serve him. And because if that way of thinking doesn't go, if Simon is going to stay this course of, of unrepentant, this unrepentant perspective on, on Jesus, if he's, going to re, if he's going to try and remain faithful and mature in the faith, then this needs to go away. Uh, and then in a response that I find very encouraging, Simon replies, who are you to talk to me? And no, he says, pray for me. Pray for me. None of what you said may come upon me. Pray for me. I want to mature. Pray for me. And that's what I'm hoping we'll do for each other, which is pray for each other's maturity in the faith. And as we close, I hope we can see just how incredibly powerful it is when we devote ourselves to a rule of life that centers on Jesus and when we are together willing to face hard truths about ourselves and submit them to Jesus' transforming grace because I want us to be a people who know that whether Jesus is uprooting us or planting us, whatever season of life we're in, we can trust him because our gracious Savior is the same yesterday, today, and forever when we can pray to him for each other and know that he will always respond with grace and mercy. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we know that you make all things beautiful in your time, and uh, that sometimes the way you make us beautiful is by bringing us through periods of change and disruption. And as you do this, we ask that you would reveal ourselves to us, and then that you would help us to submit what we see to you so that we can be transformed into the image of Jesus and grow as his disciples. 
Uh, and since we know that transforming work is most usually done through our weekly life with you, please bless us as we gather each week to worship you and rest in you. Please bless us as we pray together and sacrificially welcome each other into our lives in your name so that the, the changes that you are producing will be rooted deeply within us and so affect every aspect of our lives to your glory and praise. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.